Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Before I share this week's episode, I want to say this conversation was recorded before this week's horrific murders in Atlanta that left eight people dead. As you probably know, six of the victims were of Asian descent and two were white, seven were women. My guest and I would have discussed this atrocity had we recorded after the shooting. But I am honored to say that next week on the podcast, I'll be joined by a group of incredible Asian American women who are bravely going to share their voices and stories. I hope you'll tune in next week for this bonus episode. In the meantime, listen in to Tiffany's story. Welcome to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is Tiffany Bloom. Tiffany is an East Indian-born author, speaker, podcaster, and an adoptive parent who is passionate about the restoration of marginalized people groups. As a minority immigrant woman with an interracial family, she cares deeply about women's equality and justice and dignity. Tiffany's story includes serving as an outreach pastor at an urban megachurch, where she engaged parishioners with marginalized individuals. But there's another part of Tiffany's story she wishes wasn't hers to tell. Like many women today, Tiffany's story has led her to take action against sexual harassment and sexual assault. In our conversation and her new book, Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up, Tiffany shares about the dynamics of power and abuse in systems we all find ourselves in. In our candid conversation, Tiffany shares parts of her own chapters of overcoming silence to expose the truth, and she also talks about the backlash she faced. Ultimately, in sharing her story, Tiffany empowers others to speak up against abuses of power and the silencing of women. Tiffany, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad well, to I'm, I was thrilled when your team reached out to have you on because I've known of you because one of my earliest guests when I started this podcast two and a half years ago was Ashley Abercrombie. Um, I adore her. appreciate her so much because she came on when I had like, had not had many guests at all. And she had no clue who this girl was, but she came on and shared her story well before her book. And I just loved her and started listening to the podcast that you and her do. So I'm familiar with you a little bit just through that, but I'm glad to get to talk to you today. Oh, so glad to be here. Well, before we dive in, because you have a new book coming out called Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up, which we're going to talk about today, but we're also going to talk about your story. But before we do that, can you just share a little bit about who you are in your day-to-day? Not jumping into your story yet, but just what your day-to-day life looks like, where you live, all of that. Of course. So I live in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area. I'm a mother. I have two little boys, 10 and six. They keep me on my toes. My oldest is adopted from Uganda Uh and my youngest is biological. So we got a little United Nations thing going on over here. I was adopted from India, just shy of my second birthday and grew up in a very rural area um, that was really it was interesting. It was interesting, interesting to be a person of color and not meet another person of color until yeah. I was in middle school. Yeah. Um, I found the love of my life in Bible study, a young adult Bible study. And we've been married almost 12 years okay. and he's a realtor. And I've spent the majority of my adult life um, serving women in one shape, form or another, uh, writing to women, discipling women, speaking to women um, and podcasting for women, serving women who are transitioning out of the sex industry, women who have been homeless, women who are um, in the prison system. That has been my heartbeat. That is how I've chosen to spend myself. 
Yeah, you really do. I mean, I wasn't familiar with your story and all you've done, and you have had a heart and a passion for the marginalized and women, and that is what your life has been about. So let's just start, though, with, because I find so often that origin stories really shape women's passions and where they're drawn to. So would you mind sharing a little bit of your childhood story? You said you were adopted, grew, grew up in predominantly white spaces. Wherever you want to start with that. Yeah, I was... I was probably four and a half when I just started to despise my skin. Again, mm-hmm. growing up in an all-white community, really struggling to not only identify as Indian, but identify as brown. That was difficult. Yeah. My, my parents are white. My brothers are white. Um, and so as I grew up, I did not meet the cultural expectations people had of me as an Indian in America. And I didn't have that full first culture that I could really cling to that was an encouragement and that, that was unique to my identity. And as an adult, when I went to India to, I was speaking at a women's conference, I was very sharply reminded that I wasn't in India in India as well. So it was just mm-hmm. this in-between, constantly feeling like an imposter no matter what culture I was in. And that was really satiated in the good news of Jesus. Like I found myself as equal and welcome in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it changed everything. It, be, it, it was my confidence. It was my understanding of self. It was my, just a boost to my self-esteem. And it just, it gave me fresh eyes to not only see my own story as something good, yeah. but to see everyone's story as something good. And to really, um, to really see those, just as you said, on the margins. And it built in me such a compassion and a resilience that I'm so grateful for. I don't despise my story. It has a lot of broken pieces, just like all of ours do, but it's one that I I treasure so deeply. And it really has been a driving force in my heart for marginalized women. I'm guessing it's taken you a little bit of time to get to that point because when we're in it and it's so hard, we just are not liking our stories and wondering how is God going to use this or why? Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit, you brought up that knowing and loving Jesus really changed it all for you. Were you brought up in a home, a house of faith and in the church? Uh, yeah, I, you know what, I was that millennial who had parents who were always at church, but you didn't see fruit at home. You didn't see life change at home. Yeah. And I found the Lord when someone in middle school invited me to go to a youth ministry. Mm. And I remember walking in and hearing this, you know, some young 20 something pastor share about the goodness of Jesus. And he was so sincere and he wasn't uh, posturing and he wasn't trying to be cool. He was very uncool and it was so vulnerable and so honest and so authentic. And I remember thinking, if this guy's telling the truth, I'll give my whole life to this. Mm. And, uh, and I never looked back. So just had a rich foundation, um, from this youth ministry. I'm a big believer in good youth ministries. Yes. yes. (laughs) Um, ones that really are passionate, not about the show, but discipling kids because it changed my life. I had a vision of what could be that I didn't Mm. have previous to that. And especially yeah. growing up in a small town, I mean, the internet was barely a thing. It was a, it was a beautiful thing to see people living intentional, whole, vibrant, wonderful lives from the glory of God. And so it really, it, I caught the fire for sure. Yeah. I caught it young. And that, that really, uh, I mean, I, by, after that, I lettered in youth group. I was, a, I was a fan. I was like, man, this is the safest, sweetest place and that's where I met Jesus. And and, we're and I think that's an important part for you to share of your story, because you do openly talk about, which is so important, about the issues in the patriarchy within the church and the harm that the church can do, too. So we can have both and in this institution. And I think that's important to share. You're not roaming out the whole church nope, with, with this all. analysis and 
encouraging women to speak out and knock down systems that are not working. So talk a little bit about, you say in your book, I grew up as a girl from East India, raised in a rural white community with white parents, male siblings, and I never thought to question the hierarchy. So talk about that of your story. When, when did you start noticing that hierarchy? Or maybe you didn't. I know you share an early experience in your childhood of being silenced. Just kind of where you want to go with that when that started playing into your story. Absolutely. Uh, I first just want to circle back. I love what you said about the both and. I've recently gotten several questions of how do you still follow Jesus? Why are you still Mm -hmm. so plugged into a local church if this is such a problem? And why would you still want to serve the Lord? And I'm like, whoa, don't miss this. Don't miss the goodness of Jesus and his encounters with women in the New Testament and all that we can glean from that. The the rich kingdom is what I'm after. The good, glorious kingdom is what I'm after. Not a, not a counterfeit. Yeah. Uh, so my, I got, I was going to say something else with that. There's so much we could talk about that. Cause I just got goosebumps. You saying that. Cause that's been part of my story too. Just seeing and being part of the harmfulness of the church, but I still love Jesus. I still want to raise yeah. my daughters in the church, but I want the real authentic Jesus yeah. to come out and to be followed and to be known. And that's part of this work. So anyway, we don't have to keep, but it's, that's oh, important. It. That's important. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So I was surrounded by people who didn't look like me and, and they were the majority culture who sounded the same, voted the same, looked the same, dressed the same, believed the same things had their same John Wayne Jesus. And um, I really didn't think that I fit in. And so I spent so much of my life denying and pretending that half of who I am didn't exist because I was so committed to fit in and be acceptable to dominant culture, the way I talked, the way I dressed. I mean, I was wearing Doc Martens and a Gap sweatshirt, just like everyone else, right? Yeah. I was so, um, I did everything I could to hide that I was different. And of course, people still noticed and people still pointed it out. And I would say, honestly, it was after 9-11, anyone who appeared Arab was fair game (laughs) to many people Mm -hmm. to attack and slander. So the disdain I had for my skin that I kept to myself was now matched from exterior voices. And it was then that I thought, man, and, and, and again, that's also around the same time I found the Lord. So it was just this, the storm of discovering who Jesus is and that that people have always discriminated, that people have always thought mm-hmm. lower of, of women and women of color and people that they don't believe fits the narrative. And I don't right. have a beautiful, bright, shiny story, beginning story. And so I disqualified myself in a lot of ways. Yeah. I disqualified myself yeah. from a voice or a welcomed asset in any circle I was in. And it really was after discovering Jesus encounter with women, as I just shared uh, in the gospel, it was just, it changed everything for me, being able to see the scripture and see women who had been subjugated, especially in the old Testament. And there was ramifications for that and how God drew near to them. And then to see in the new Testament, so many women who were empowered, boldly empowered and emboldened to pursue ministry, to contribute to human flourishing in such a radical way it was, I felt like I had my marching orders. I felt like I had my marching orders of what God could do when we say yes to him. And again, that, that became my worldview. That became the lens Mm -hmm. I lived life through. And I had some really awesome mentors, some of them women, some of them men, but the most impactful mentors in my life, honestly, have been white men who saw my skills and my aptitude and my passion and my energy 
and didn't exploit it. They didn't exploit my loyalty or my skills or my body or my time or my resources. And they leveraged their position to amplify my own. And so it really was this moment of understanding I deserve what everyone else deserves, which I think takes a minute. I think mm-hmm. takes a minute, especially when you are constantly reminded that you you don't, that yeah, you don't. And it's for not sure. overt, but it's still just this, hey, you don't belong here. I think even if dare, I mean, permission to speak freely, but I think even as a as a woman of color, as an immigrant in the female faith space in America that is primarily white, if that's yes. okay to say. It's a really interesting road to walk um, as I, yeah, it's an interesting road to walk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, being a woman in this country, any country is hard enough, but then the intersectionality of yeah. your brown skin immigrant, I mean, that, that piles on so much more, even within the church. Yeah. Before we jump too far ahead, I was going to have you read this earlier, but I just, re- just remembered, I want you to read a couple pages of your book because I also... I think if people are listening and think, well, this doesn't really relate to me. I'm a woman, but I haven't been silent. Like this relates so much. Your book is for every woman. It examines the outcomes of women when they're silent, slandered, and finally believed. And this happens on so many levels that I don't even think some women were not aware. And telling your story is part of it, all parts of your story. So if you could read for me page 57, starting on 57 to 58 of your book, Tiffany, and then we'll, we'll keep talking about your story. All right. As women are silenced, their story does not vanish into thin air. It simply goes underground. Every woman who has been silenced eventually comes to the realization that just because she doesn't talk about it doesn't mean she can go on as if it didn't happen. I'm not referring only to sexual misconduct that goes unreported. Women are silenced by teachers who think STEM fields are for the boys, by professors who think women have no business speaking up, by coaches who think women are weak and can be mastered, by pastors who think women should shut up and look pretty, by doctors who think women have no idea what they are talking about by bosses who assume their female colleagues should take the notes and get the coffee, and by the coworkers who simply watch as women do just that. And how many girls have learned silence from their own fathers and mothers who don't want anyone to know what's happened under their roof. If women are trained to be silent from their life experiences, their conditioned response is likely to affect their view of God, of others, and of themselves. They subconsciously know their place in the world by the way others treat them. They may nurse their wounds in private, but what if they didn't have to? What if we could hold space for women who have been harmed, who have been humiliated, and who have been silenced, lament alongside them, ensure them that they are seen, that their stories matter, and that they will be treated with the utmost care? What if our churches, kitchen tables, and faith gatherings were the safest of places for them to process those experiences? What if silence weren't spiritual? What if we not only listened, but also committed to the process of healing, of wholeness? As someone who has grown up in church, I find it interesting that we are quick to parade a woman on stage or share her story on social media, only if she has already overcome. We might even share the salacious tidbits that will really get folks salivating. We ask her to tell her story or a pastor tells it, or a pastor tells it from his point of view, inadvertently forcing her to relive the trauma. But for the woman who has yet to harness her story and wrangle it into something shiny and beautiful, well, we don't always know what to do with those. Those are the ones we silence because their story requires change, changes that have yet to be made, hard conversations we aren't willing to have and healing that we haven't made time for. We must not only celebrate the woman who has overcome, but we must make space for all women to overcome. To right the cultural wrong of silencing women, we must be ready to listen to whatever a woman might confide in us. It could be far outside the lines of what we believe is acceptable and our trite comebacks, our disapproving nods, and our willingness to write her off as needy are far from helpful. Her story must do more than anger us. We mustn't fall mute when we feel uncomfortable or infuriated by her experience. Her pain is our pain. 
Her brokenness is our brokenness. If she has been harmed, silenced, and taken advantage of, so have we. If we want her to speak up, we must go first. So powerful. And like I told you, I highlight parts of the book and I think I highlighted all two of those pages because there's so much there, Tiffany. And your book is a powerful one that I... I encourage my listeners to get because that that is just a little bit of a preview into it and just the realities that we talk about. And when you talked about how we, we, we are more likely to share these stories after the fact that are all shiny, that spoke to me of like a podcaster. Okay, what stories am I sharing? What stories do we share in church? Like there's so, even when we think we've got this figured out, not silencing women, we, we still do it. Yeah. And there's, like I said, just so much there. So like you said, if we want her to speak up, we must go first. And you've done that. And I'd like you to just share a little bit more detail. Maybe share the experience when you first felt silenced in your childhood that you share in a book as a yeah. child. So when I was just a little, little gal, um, gosh, first grade, I think it was the end of first grade. I was over at the neighbor's house and their, um, their parents of these two girls, one was in her thirties and her, her dad was 30 years older than her mom. And I was over there just playing in the front yard. And again, rural America. So one house to the next is pretty far, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I, we were just playing out in the front yard, I think with her cat, like just so simple, innocent mm-hmm. kid stuff. And her dad comes out with a gun. What are you doing here? Why are you here? You got to get off my property. You need to go back where you came from. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a go back across the street. It was a, you don't belong here because you're brown. And he had his black shiny gun in his hand. I remember thinking, I really don't belong. And that experience was so seared into my psyche that it just was this reminder, you don't belong, you don't fit in. And it really would not be, (laughs) would not be diffused for quite some time. That really was my line of thinking for so long, just because women of color have often felt like, man, I can't meet these needs. I could do everything right and still be discarded. Yeah. And I mean, that as a mom of two daughters, you're a mom of two boys. I mean, that is just heartbreaking to hear that. And that goes on so often. And as a white woman, I need these reminders that that goes on and that it still does. And that what, how much that just rips the soul of someone like you, a woman of color growing up in, in this country. And so from that point on, when did you start I guess just start like telling me your experiences with being silenced. And then what, obviously you had to feel that a lot in your life to culminate writing a book like this. One of the things, one of the things you say that really struck me, women weigh the odds and count the costs in speaking out. And you did that your little first grade self, you did. And we do it all the time, especially women of color. That's powerful. So just tell me how that played out in your life. Yeah. I think that I want to say first, I'm an Enneagram three, very agreeable, diplomatic, want to do well, want to needs of other people Mm want to, um, I think when evangelical culture set boundaries, I was like, okay, I, I captain, I can meet (laughs) and I, and not in a, not in a, I won't be accepted if I don't meet these, but in a, like, I want to do right. Right. I want to do good. Right. And my, my, my heart really, I, I thought was in a good place. And so when I found myself in a situation where that need and compassion and care wasn't reciprocated, I realized, wow, this system is architected and both in sacred and secular culture is architected mm-hmm. to keep women from speaking up and addressing uh, imbalances of power. And we see this everywhere. We see it in education and politics and obviously in the church and 
in entertainment. We see it everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And the narrative is if something bad happened, you must have invited it. There must have been something you did. So the onus has been on women, and I've felt this, and I'll specifically in purity culture, I felt this, but the onus has been on women to escape imbalances of power between men and women more than it is for men to behave justly and for seek sure. equality and reciprocity and mutuality. So in my experience, growing up in the 90s purity movement, um, again, I, I was like, I'm all for this, wore it's the right. ring, read the it's books, right. did all the things. And I... I, I think there was a lot to glean, but I think this messaging that it is a woman's role to control a man's lustful desires mm -hmm. and it's a woman's job because men are just creatures of lust and, and desire that right. we must hold the line. We must be responsible. So if something does happen, if there is impropriety and not just physically of time, of resources, right. of he said, she said, then the man gets the upper hand. They get the, they kind of get this get out of jail free card, and I think for me, it, I took that I took that thinking into adult life. And so in the workplace, when a man would make a comment about my body or about my hair or about how I was dressed, I thought to myself, oh, I shouldn't have worn this dress today, mm -hmm. or I shouldn't have worn my hair like this today, or I shouldn't have worn my hoops today, because apparently I invited that. So what happens is we take these these messages that something you have done is the reason that this that the world is going wrong, right? We 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 just love to blame Eve for everything. We love to believe these ancient Greco-Roman influences that infiltrated the, the early church, that it wasn't the culture, the church culture shaping the world, it was the the outside culture shaping right. the church. This right. belief that you know women were deformed men or that they are the existence of evil in the world. We have really, um, not we, the early church fathers yeah. really, really camped on that. And then, of course, you go to the time of the printing press where that was really able to be, those ideas were able to be disseminated and on a broad scale. And then now you fast forward to these moments where women feel like, if I speak up, I'm the one with mud on my face because he's going to be excused and I'm going to be that girl. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. be that girl who's, I mean, look at Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford. She, she had no intention of coming forward until some documents were leaked. Uh -huh. And then she still to this day has private security because um, she fears for her life. And yeah. the man she spoke up about is on the Supreme Court. So we, we have evidence. We have evidence of what will happen if we do. So I think that this is twofold. There's some self-silencing going on because of how we watch other people are treated in the public square, maybe someone in our own lives, someone in our church. And then in addition to that, we, we do not want to upset the gatekeepers who have let us in to whatever system we're in, whether it is church, whether it is work, whether it is right. wherever we, you know, wherever we work and play. Right. And so it's just this multifaceted um, situation where we self-silence. We have all these outside influences that came in our formative years that convince us that we're the problem. And there's that victim blaming. Right. And then, of course, we watch how other women are treated. Right. I mean, we're, we see it all the time. In your book, you do an amazing job of just laying out all the cases and the ramifications and what those women have faced and not as a deterrent to do it, but why we do it. Yeah. So I'm curious how you broke out of that. You say for the majority of my life, I had made my mission to keep men who held power in my life pleased with me to stay in their good side and to do as I was told, which same. I mean, I feel like every woman about could raise their hand to that because right. that is just right. how we're raised and that's what you do. And even awareness that we do it, I, I'm still guilty of that. And it's a hard thing to break out of. So I'm curious when you really started realizing that and breaking out of it, because again, you wrote a book about it. And so I'm kind of wondering like where, where that was that you were like bold enough to break out of it. 
Yeah. Honestly, it was when others lent me their strength. Mm-hmm. I think so often we feel like we need to walk these roads alone and mm-hmm. abusive power at a woman's expense doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's a one-two punch. Yeah. It's the person who's abusing their power and the system who's enabling them to, to abuse it. So being able to have someone on the outside, lend me their strength and say, you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to walk this alone because at the end of the day, I wasn't the one who was taken advantage of. I was in this complicit toxic system, yeah. but I was the whistleblower. I was yeah. the person thinking I have an ethical responsibility to speak up. And although I self-silenced for far longer than I should, by the time I did speak up, all of the horrible things that I thought would happen, 100% did happen. (laughs) Uh, So it was this, again, just as you said earlier, I very much counted the cost and even just the relationships that would be lost. So it was counting the cost of the relationships that will be lost for me. I was the breadwinner of my home, Andrea. Mm, Like I had a lot to think about when thinking about how I'm going to feed my kids. I, I had a newborn And a a little guy that we had just adopted. Um, And so I just, just, it was the worst timing of my entire life. But when is it ever good timing to do the right thing? (laughs) Especially when the right thing's the hard thing. Um, So I, it was really when others stepped in and said, you don't have to do this alone. Because that's Mm. what fear does. That's what shadow figures do. They make you feel so alone and isolated. And they appear larger than life. And you realize, despite the fear despite the anxiety inducing moments this is causing, I must do the right thing because my loyalty to convictions had to eventually outweigh my loyalty to an institution. And that's where that tipping point came. When others lent me their strength and my loyalty to my convictions really went out. So you sacrificed a lot to speak up. Again, you, you paid a price. Was it, was it worth, was it worth the cost and the sacrifice and why, why, why do women yeah, I guess answer that. I mean, I know yes is easy to say, but it's a lot that you yeah. sacrificed. Yeah, it was it was outrageously costly. Um, mm-hmm. Just my career. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think of where I would be if that wouldn't have derailed my career. In yeah. fact, this issue, the imbalance of power at a woman's expense, is the leading factor in a woman's uh, livelihood of her professional career. Um, and so we'd love to think that this is just this isolated women's empowerment issue, and it's not. This is the most dangerous issue of our time because women are, our entire lives are derailed because of this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, No matter if they're in the highest um, halls of power or if they're working at McDonald's on a minimum wage, like this affects everyone. So for me, it really was, again, counting that cost. And would I, uh, looking back, um, I I was, there was going to be a death either way. Yeah. Because it was a, such a toxic environment that that would have killed me. <laughs> I would have shriveled yeah. up. Yeah. And been a shell of myself. Or it was to go out as a truth teller. And here's the thing. When people finally feel the bravery to speak up, they're labeled as betrayers. They're labeled as how dare you betray this system or this person. Mm-hmm. Look what mm-hmm. they've done for you. There's that, there's that card they play of like, You've gleaned so much from this. How could you do this? Mm-hmm. And the reality is there, that is the most gaslighting, manipulating way of handling things because right. that's the perfect way to silence somebody when they're finally yeah. brave enough to speak up. As a I kid. mean, I think if you yeah. look like this morning when I was thinking about this and just reading and it being Women's History Month, I mean, the timing for your book to be released couldn't be more perfect with that. But if we look, I mean, we like to play paint this pretty picture of women's history and celebrating these women. None of that came without a huge cost. None of these women's accomplishments, none of women getting ahead, breaking glass ceilings comes without a huge cost. And I think that's what 
women right now have to realize as mothers, like what, what do we want to give up for our daughters and sons even, and for the next generation of Jesus followers, what do we want? I mean, it's giving it up for Jesus too, the truth and justice. Yeah, there's a cost. And I know you do it again. The reality is there is a cost, but you have to focus on why, why you're doing what you're doing. And I think that book, that's another reason your book is so important for that encouragement and to know why, why it's important to be allies with women. And I want to talk about that a little bit later about being allyship with women to speak up. But before we do, I want to go back a little bit to the church because this is a Christian-based podcast. And like I shared that I've had some, a lot of deconstruction of my own faith and the church. Um, but you have a pr- really powerful chapter talking about the misuse of Matthew 18 mm. and that verse. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more because I think it's worth, even when people read your book, it's worth repeating because so many scriptures are used for harm and used yep. to silence women. And this is one that I've seen over and over uh, used and obviously you have too, because you gave a, gave a chapter of the book to it. So will you talk yeah. just a little bit about that? Yeah. So Matthew 18 invites us to go to a brother or sister who there may be a squabble with, maybe a disagreement with and seek reconciliation. It does not, it speaks to horizontal relationships. It does not speak mm-hmm. to vertical leadership, yeah. but what happens is when there is somebody who is inferior who comes to someone in power that is charged with handling accountability and responsibility over someone who's abused their power. Uh, we come and we say, Hey, this happened. And we're told, Oh, you should have gone Matthew 18 style. And so we flip that faith leader to friend. Mm-hmm. We kind of decide, Oh no, in this moment, I'm not your leader in this moment. I don't have dominion over you. We're equals. You should come to me. Yeah. And in reality, if somebody has been harmed, the last person they want to go to when it's a vertical situation right. is the perpetrator of abuse. You right. want to be able to go to a third party and say, I know you're charged with handling this person and here's my situation. And I, here's my evidence. And here's who's coming who come, who's come with me, who's witnessed my trauma. And what happens is it's that second wave of shame because there's this yes. initial experience of abuse of power. And then we go to the very people who should be able to help us Oh, Andrew, this is so painful. We go to the very people Mm -hmm. who should be comforting us, who should be bandaging up our wounds, and they watch us bleed out. They watch us bleed to death as we share these toxic experiences. And instead they say, oh, you should have gone to him. Yes, I'd love to go in the lion's den and be Mm -hmm. with Mm him. And so I think just that exploitation of that passage, which really in 1 Timothy 5, we're invited in vertical leadership to go to elders. We, 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 We go into this, um, more ordered way of bringing up issues, bringing accounts to people who can handle them. And what happens is the very people charged with administering accountability are the ones to do the bidding of an abuser of power. Yes. They're, they have such proximity to power that they will often write off the people who are bringing accusations and they treat this abuser of power as if they're immune to dissent, immune to accusations, right. even more uh, th- this idea of bringing two or more witnesses gets turned into bring two or more victims. We need to know that this man has destroyed at least two or more people before mm-hmm. we will take action. Mm-hmm. We are misinterpreting even that passage there. So this idea that um, witnesses can't be, uh, you know, if, if a daughter came and said, my pastor did X to me and she brought her mom, that's two or more witnesses, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so just this encouragement to go to a perpetrator to make it right when that person has the power, the resources and the means to control the narrative, That's right. to administer consequences that are undeserved, yeah. to gaslight 
it's it's just the, the options are open for that person. And right. we, we must we must be willing to listen to people who have it that are lower on that ladder and on that rung and, and really be able to hear them and hear their stories for what they are and have a safe place for them to report that where this person in power, whether it's church, whether it's business, whether it's education, politics, whether it's entertainment, where they don't have this unchecked misogynistic power with free of accountability. In fact, research shows that those, especially men who have more access to power, platform resources, they see themselves as more sexually desirable despite their appearance and will often seek out sexual misconduct, sexual affairs, not always consensual. So we, with this evidence of what power can do to a person, we have to be able to create systems that address that and encourage somebody to stay in check, not just for their work performance, right. whether it's sacred or secular culture, because we love to praise when someone can bring in money or speak charismatically. But if we do not address somebody's emotional, spiritual, mental health, then we are, we're going to pay for it in the long run. Absolutely. And in the church, it's so, it's so nuanced because there's so many scriptures that have been used against women. I mean, you even bring up Matthew six fourteen about forgiving male perpetrators, like using that scripture. I mean, there's so much, which makes it so hard. I mean, in your book, you were praising the words of Paul, but then immediately I think, well, Paul said for women to be silent in church. And so, I mean, I know that that's taken out of context, but I've just seen like you have to scripture yes. applied, misapplied to yeah. women and to be used. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't it interesting that we take Paul's household codes, right? We take these mm -hmm. select verses from Paul over the entire life of Jesus. Uh-huh. No, <laughs> but I mean the ministry of Jesus and we elevate Paul's words over our savior and Messiah who clearly treated women with dignity, honor, respect and equality. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so I mean I'm glad my eyes are open to this cuz for too long my eyes weren't and it was like, okay, well, I guess that's what it says. And I mean, going on with the allyship, I mean, that is why it's so important that we we know these sort of things. So let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's a huge part of this, the allyship. You say in your book, women who have been silenced desperately need other women to unite for them. I mean, and that's part of my goal with this podcast and sharing stories. And I know you're the same. It's like these stories need to be told. And we as women, we need to be on, on the same team uniting. But it's so much more than that. So will you talk about that? Because allyship isn't just going on women's marches. And I think that's twofold. First, women encouraging women, women supporting women is so necessary. I think it's one thing to speak truth to power about a monster. It's a whole nother thing to have women defend a monster and to paint you as a disgruntled woman who is out to get him and is jealous of other women. That's, that's painful. That's unnecessary and unhelpful and untrue. And um, I, I detail the Roger Ailes saga in the book of how women defended him and didn't speak up for their coworkers and didn't speak up for other women. So I think, um, it's one of the most painful parts of speaking up um, against abuse of power is when you watch women defend. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh had all of his high school classmates from a million years ago. Um, they, they all wrote a letter to the Senate defending him of his actions when he was in high school. Like the, and it was all signed by these women. And I yeah. can't imagine how Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford felt about her former classmates of all those years ago, defending him and not seeing her situation and how she might've felt or, or, exp right. or her experience. So I think that there's a unique pain that comes from women not standing up with other women, especially when there's clear evidence that something has happened. 
there's been foul play. And then I think allyship looks like um, that reciprocity. Allyship requires sacrifice. Yeah. You know, I think of Nathan in the Bible when he came to King David and said, you have sinned. Here's what you've done. He lays it all out. And he serves as a, as an ancient ally, a male yeah. ally to Bathsheba. Although they don't, they're not in the same scene. We don't always see it like that, but he stood up for a woman and he, mm-hmm. there was cost to that. And it was obviously well known enough what David did that it got to Nathan and he, he came forward and he leveraged his position and power and didn't coddle, didn't tickle yeah. his ears. He yeah. spoke truthfully. There will be consequences to this. And David never had um, what he had previously had. He, his kingdom was never the same. His own son trying to take his, his throne. I mean, his life was never the same. And we'd love to think, oh, but he, he repented and everything was fine. Yes, he repented. Let's not skip over the fact that he actually repented. Right, right. And then you move on to what does allyship look today? I think Jesus models this really well mm-hmm. when we see his encounter with the woman who was caught in adultery. And he places himself between those who'd cast the first stone and her. And then he addresses them. And then once they've gone, he addresses her. There's yes. just, it's, it's not performative. He waits till they've left. He didn't try to empower her in front of all of them. There was this willingness to place themselves in the sickness of the situation. So when we think about male allyship, when we think about female allyship to other women, place yourself in the situation, lend your strength, as yes. I already had said. Yes. And then address the issue, whatever issue is happening and, and speak truth to that, especially if you're not the one feeling traumatized or minimized or demeaned, there's some power that you're not, there's some power that you have because you're not emotionally affected by this. And then I think also you, you go to this woman, what are your needs? What would be valuable to you? Whether that's in the workplace in church, having women at decision-making tables is so much of the answer. (laughs) It's so much Mm -hmm. of the answer and not Mm -hmm. one woman, not performatively one woman, but many women. And what what can happen is we can kind of give this like pedestal effect. It's called to men who somewhat show an interest in encouraging women to have equal rights and a place at church and a place in the workplace and them merely listening isn't enough. It truly is seeing them as equals because there's still some subjugation there. If it's like, I'm here to help you Mm -hmm, versus mm -hmm. how can we, work together to build an equitable space and place for everyone. So it really is, it it requires humility. It requires listening and it requires action, action to really think, okay, you're sharing this with me and I'm not just going to listen. I have to follow through and act. I think one of the most practical ways um, when I think of allyship, specifically male allyship, is when a man is given a promotion, an opportunity, a speaking engagement, whatever the case may be, and think, what woman in my world would this mm-hmm. benefit? How could I how mm-hmm. could I empower her? How could I pass this awesome opportunity to build her up and not just continually building? Women, men are always going to find a way to have a place. <laughs> right. So many places are built exclusively for them. Boardrooms in both sacred and secular culture. So there really, there really must be a shift in believing that women belong. And yeah, not I- just in this faux egalitarian way, but truly. Um, right. Truly equal. And you shared that earlier that some of the most helpful lifting you up times in your life have been with men, which I was a little surprised to hear because I mean, we think we just have this preconceived notion that, oh, that that's just not happening. It's only as women that are just going to, but we, but we can't do it without the male allyship as well. Partnership. It's partnership. Mm -hmm. And that's the picture of the kingdom, right? Like this isn't a like, Hey, we're women. We want to take over. Oh my gosh. That's not the, the rallying cry. And we're often accused of that, that we're just trying to be, we're advantageous or we're, we're exploiting this issue. Oh my grace. No, at all. What we're hungering for is true equality, biblical equality that we are given in Genesis one and that we see Jesus move that moral arc of the universe toward in the new Testament and one that we carry on to this very day. 
Do you feel like it is, we are make, is the needle shifting? Do you feel like we're making advances or are we going back? I mean, it's, it's been hard to tell with the last four years of the presidency, but I think things came to the surface. Yeah. I, I think mean, th- that's yeah. what has to happen though. Right. It's yeah. it, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. I think you're, you're seeing people aren't able to mask how they feel about issues anymore mm-hmm. That's so um, true. because there's skin in the game for all of us. And yeah. so I think that it's, it's one thing to think everything's going okay and that we're moving it along. And it's another thing to know the monsters under the bed and to know how people really feel. And I think people are doubling down on believing that, you know, women don't have a place in space and that all the issues they're bringing up are, uh, are derailing a good conversation to advance the gospel, which is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. If you look at someone like Beth Moore who left. I was going to just say her. Yeah because of these very issues that we are talking about right now. Yep. She saw compromise. She saw that her sisters were not valued and respected. And she saw nationalism overtake the goodness and true kingdom. And so it's, this is not a time to be like, Oh, everything's great. It's like, no, how am I actively moving the ball forward? Or am I pulling this ball back? Yeah. I, and she was going through my mind for the latter part of this conversation too, because that is huge. Right. That someone with her influence is, is seeing it and speaking up for her sisters and taking a stand. And, and we don't have to be the Beth Moores to do that. Right. Even it though it's ordinary huge. faithful, right? The That's ordinary right. Faithful. That's right. And I want to talk just a little bit going back to the allyship, because I think this is really important and I don't want to miss it. You talk about the first part is examining like our own our own part that we play in this mm. and how, how we have benefited from the silence because we have as women, yeah. it's, that's hard for me to admit, but I have, I've admitted, I mean, as a white woman, I've greatly benefited from keeping silent and going with the status quo. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I think within all of us is a desire for safety, yeah, a desire for security. And that is it's, it can move into the space of idolatry when we're willing to sacrifice others on that altar so we can have security, so we can have proximity to power or maybe even our own portion of power. And that must be examined. We have to take that to the throne room and we have to look at that and say, how have I benefited? How have I been complicit by my silence? The littlest thing, right, Andrea? When you hear coarse joking and you don't say something, the Mm -hmm. littlest thing. When you see a woman feeling just a little bit uncomfortable in the church foyer because Doug, the, the usher put his hand on mm-hmm. her back and you're like, mm-hmm. something's not right here. And we're like, Oh no, Doug's just a friendly old senior right. citizen. Right. We, it's the tiny little things. When we hear, um, when we hear our own pastor say something disrespectful about woman, a, a woman, and we, we laugh along with the congregation at the joke. That's right. That's right. It, there's, it's just, it, there's such, I know that might be a little bigger, but there's such little things. There's big things. There's intermediate things that we can find ourselves in being like, oh my gosh, look how I have played into this. And when we do have any semblance of power and we are not using it to advance both men and women, then then we are complicit in these systems. And so it really, I mean, look at the suffrage movement, right? 101 years ago, women are marching. We see, we have the, we have the pictures. It's white mm-hmm. women marching. Mm-hmm. They would not even let their black sisters march with them. They made the black sisters right. go to the end of the line because right. they said that's a separate issue. That's right. And you even opened with that, the intersectionality of all this. We have, we must take into account class, access to resources, physical size, race. There, there's so much to take into account of this that we, we can't ignore. We can't ignore how we have benefited. I benefited for so long of laughing along 
the opportunities and the promotions and the place of power that I received because I didn't speak up. And when I even spoke up a tiny, tiny, weensy, weensy bit, I lost more than I thought was suitable. And then you can only imagine when I really blew the whistle, um, the damnation that came my way. Yeah. And that's, again, what we want to reiterate. There, There is a cost, but yeah. gosh, is it worth it, especially as Jesus following women seeking justice for our, our sons and daughters and the next generations. Yes. So tell me with this book that releases, releases March 16th, what is your goal for it? What was your goal for writing it, releasing it? Because writing a book isn't an easy endeavor. So right. there was like, and there's a cost to writing it. For sure. I really want us as, as people of faith to stop asking the question, oh, why didn't she speak up? Why didn't anybody say anything? When we see our news feeds fill with stories about Bill Hybels or John Christ or Carl Lentz or Robbie Zacharias, you know, before it hits CNN and Christianity today, I want us to rethink how did this even happen? Yes. What systems create this? And how am I a part of this, this hamster wheel that continually subjugates, silence, and slanders women? And I think in our day and age, this is, as I said, this is the leading factor that will derail a, a woman's livelihood, her career, her future. And so if, with that in mind, I hope that we would educate ourselves so we can stand up and be advocates and allies and truth tellers because before it gets on the news, right? There were those small things where Doug, the usher had his hand on her back and you notice something. Yep. Think about if we caught those moments before they were full blown abuses of power that hurt thousands of people. That's right. Ordinary people like you and I can say something when we see something. That's right. I want to also mention, you just, you said it so beautifully. You said, we have to do this on behalf of our sons and daughters. And I had a nine month old um, when I finally really fully walked away and I saw this uh, beautiful picture and it, I'm crazy C.S. Lewis fan and I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. And it was a lion with a baby lion and the way mm -hmm. that this little baby lion, it was just an art piece, but the way that this lion, and it, again, I was had a nine month old, a lot of picture books. Um, the way that this little baby lion was looking at this mama, mama lioness. And I was like, my kids are watching me right now. I'm going to have to tell them this story. What advice would I give to my sons if they were in my exact situation? As a man, if they were in my situation, what would I encourage them to do? And honestly, that was a huge moment for me of thinking, I have to live this out. Th these children are depending on me to be an upright, moral, righteous woman of God, seeking the goodness of God for all men and women, not just myself, not just my family. That's right. And I love it that I have two daughters, you have two sons, but it's still just as important both ways for the next, for this next generation. That's right. Because all of our stories are so, so related and connected. Tiffany, I've loved talking to you. I could keep chatting. I just encourage folks to get, get your book, read it, analyze, highlight, go to your website because you have other resources on there. You're the author of a couple, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple other books and you have lots of information on your website. So tell everybody where you can be found, where they can get the book and the name of your podcast. I don't even think I said that. No worries. So at tiffanybloom.com, B-O-U-H-M has all kinds of goodies, um, a book club discussion guide. You can actually read the first chapter for free. You can right. listen to the first chapter for free. Um, there's, uh, there's so many goodies there. 
And I hang out mostly on Instagram at Tiffany Bloom. And my podcast that I co-host with fellow author Ashley Abercrombie is called Why Though? And we answer the existential questions we ask ourselves and everything from systemic injustice to our favorite frozen pizzas. So it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's it's awesome. I love it. You guys have so much fun. You're fun to listen to. But like you said, it's it's everything. It makes me envious I don't have a co-host when I listen to you guys. So I got to be honest, it's pretty fun to just show up and have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So fun. Um, Yeah, well, we will put links to all of that in the show notes, Tiffany, and where folks can find you and get your book, okay? Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In listening to Tiffany's story, I hope you will be moved to find your own way, your own voice, and your own conviction for standing up with other women. As Jesus followers, we must be ready to advocate for justice and healing. As always, the links mentioned in this episode can be found at the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com.